Today's scriptures reading is from Genesis chapter 1. You may find it in every Bible on page 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made a dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed over every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be the signs uh, and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, 
and over every creeping that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Shane, and thank you, Gordon. Our sermon series about what Christians believe continues today. We're going to take a look at uh, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. We're now uh, six weeks into this series, and and some of you are probably wondering when we're going to uh, pick up the pace. Uh, We're six weeks in, and we're still talking about the first person uh, of the Trinity. Uh, But fear not, be not afraid. Next week, we're going to turn to Jesus, the second person. Uh, This week, I I want to look with you at uh, God's work, uh, what we call creation and providence. And and so uh, we heard Tomas read uh, Genesis chapter 1, and and, uh, now we're going to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say about what went wrong. I mean, how creation itself uh, has been spoiled. So uh, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7, and I will be reading there beginning with verse 14. These are Paul's words, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, that that reading from Genesis 1 is a long one, I I, I realize that, and and Tomas and I talked this past week about that, and I even thought about ways to shorten it and to do away with verses here and there, and and then in the end I decided that occasionally uh, it would be good for us to hear those words, all of them, and and it would be good for us to hear this story read from beginning to end, almost to the end. It's a wonderful text. Uh, It has meaning and beauty, and and though it would be wrong to reduce it to to poetry alone, uh, the themes and images are so strong and and, and so compelling. In fact, I want to come back to one or two of them in in just a moment. Uh, So much of what we know about God and what God intended for us and what God's design is for us, so much of that is to be found right here in these verses. On Christmas Eve, 1968, uh, many of you were not yet born, 
but I was a teenager, and I remember that my family uh, turned on the television set, which is not what we ordinarily did on Christmas Eve. You can be sure of that. Uh, but this cr- uh, particular Christmas Eve was unusual. Three men, three American astronauts, had entered uh, lunar orbit with their tiny Apollo space capsule, and those three astronauts were Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders. According to Frank Borman, who was the mission commander, the three astronauts were told uh, before they left to say something appropriate. That was the extent of, uh, of the instructions that they were given. They were also told that there would be the largest uh, audience ever to listen to a human voice. Millions and millions of people uh, around the world uh, would be listening. And so the three astronauts decided to uh, uh, take turns reading from Genesis chapter 1. And I have to say it's astonishing uh, when you think about it, to imagine something similar uh, happening today. Uh, These three men were engineers and scientists and test pilots. They were chosen for the mission Uh, not because of their deep faith, but uh, because they were cool under pressure. They didn't know, for example, if the the rocket uh, would burn at precisely the right moment and and for precisely the right amount of time to send them out of lunar orbit and and back to the Earth. Bill Anders uh, started the reading, Jim Lovell came second, and then Frank Borman finished, and at the end of the reading, Frank Borman said, God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. And so, nearly 50 years ago, three men decided that the most eloquent statement they could make from lunar orbit would be the words that we heard this morning. I cried, which is not all that unusual, it happens often, but I cried, and I was as moved as I have ever been. Uh, our family did not go to church that night. We usually uh, went on, on Christmas morning. But I felt as though I had been to church. It was truly stirring. According to Genesis 1, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. I like the way the, uh, the King James Version uh, puts it a little bit better. Uh, darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And in the the first verses of the Bible, the first two verses, as a matter of fact, we are introduced to a theme that is going to be repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. And that theme, of course, is is darkness to light. First there is darkness and and nothingness and emptiness and void and, and, and deep silence. And then suddenly there is light. Uh, illumination and and the beginning of something new. In in December, we heard the words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, a a, a light will will shine on them. Uh, I'm struck every year on Easter that the day uh, begins in darkness Uh, The women set out for the the tomb before the sun is up, and and, and so darkness in the Easter story uh, stands for their grief and and confusion and disbelief. They really had no idea what what was happening, and all they could think about was anointing the body and and giving it a decent burial. As far as they were concerned, that would have been a good accomplishment for the day. But then suddenly they're, they're, they're able to see that the 
the, the stone has been rolled away and as the sun continues to rise, they begin to understand what it all means and, and, and what Jesus had told them. Right, Frederick Beekner, an American pastor and writer, likes the story that comes after uh, the Easter story in, in, in John's Gospel, after the resurrection. The disciples are fishing in the dark uh, on the Sea of Galilee, which is apparently a, a, a good time to fish. I wouldn't know. Uh, but their nets are, are empty, and as readers, we're supposed to make the connection between uh, darkness and emptiness, you know, futility and hopelessness. Uh, but then Beekner writes, they, they, they see someone uh, standing on the beach, and at first they can't make out who it is because it's dark, uh, but then they see that it's Jesus, and he's standing next to a small charcoal fire, and, and he invites them to come and to share a, a meal with him. Uh, there are more examples that I could give, but I, I, I'm going to give just one more because I love these uh, words and I find them inspiring. And every time I hear them or read them, I find myself wanting to stand up and shout them. So th this comes from the, the first letter of Peter. Uh, Peter writes, but you are, are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people of God's own choosing, so that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what happens in, in creation is what happens over and over again in, in history and in our lives, out of nothing at all, out of what is formless and, and void, frankly, out of deep pain and misery and, and futility, God is able to call forth something new, right, something good and something uh, totally unexpected. Uh, Anne Lamott, who, who writes about the spiritual life and who often uses striking language to do it, Anne Lamott likes to say that hope begins in the dark. No, and I, I wish it didn't work that way, to be perfectly honest uh, with you, but, but that's the experience of my life, and I'm, I'm guessing it's the experience of, of many of you here today. It's in the dark places of our lives, surprisingly enough, where hope is born and where hope begins to take shape. Uh, I want to point something else out, uh, out to you about the creation story uh, before we move on to providence. And I freely admit that uh, we can't possibly cover uh, all that should be said about these verses in one sermon. Uh, but I want you to see that the creation story is told with a kind of rhythm. The, the phrase, uh, maybe you heard as, as Tomas was reading, the phrase, it was good, you know, God looked and, and, and saw that it was good. This phrase occurs over and over again in the story. So uh, it was evening and it was morning, a, a second day and a third day and, and so on. There is this rhythm throughout. So at the end of each day, God looks at, at what he has made and he says, well, it's good. You know, and, and, and what we're supposed to see or notice is that God is, is taking delight in his creation. He is so pleased. Right? It, it, it is in God's nature to create, and, and in many ways, that's who he is. That is fundamental to his nature, and so this act of creation brings joy and, and delight and happiness. And if you've ever looked at the world under a microscope, or if you've seen photographs from the, the Hubble telescope, then you can get a sense of the delight that God must have felt to, to see his world teeming with life. And then after saying it was good five times, 
At the end of the first five days, God created human beings on the sixth day. And here, God changes his words slightly in verse 33, which we didn't hear. It reads, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So, So the world that God gave us, the world that God entrusted to us was not just okay, and there's always someone in the crowd who who feels compelled to say, well, I've seen better, right? No, when God looked, it was so good. And it was so pleasing that it brought delight to him. I mean, I think that unless we understand this, and unless we understood how good God thought creation was, we can't really appreciate what happens next. Very soon after God rested from his work, Uh, creation took a devastating turn. Uh, One more point before we move on. I I used to ask uh, confirmation classes uh, why God created the heavens and the earth. And, of course, I would be interested in your response uh, to this too, but I won't put you on the spot. Uh, Ask yourself, that: why did God do it? And and, uh, the answer invariably from these 15-year-olds was that God must have been lonely. God must have felt incomplete. God God needed people around to to keep him company. And and, and there's a wonderful uh, poem. It's called The Creation by the African-American preacher James Weldon Johnson. And if you've never seen it or you've never heard a recording of it, I hope you will look it up. It would be worth your time. It's really very good. But but the theology, I have to say, is a mess. And I'm afraid that has influenced a lot of people in the way we understand uh, how creation uh, came to be. According to Johnson, God stepped out on space and he looked around and said, I'm lonely, so I'll make me a world. Uh, But just so you know, we believe that God is actually self-sufficient. God enjoys perfect fellowship within the Trinity. Uh, They enjoy each other. They enjoy being together. I hate to put it this way, but God didn't need me to make his life complete. That's not what we believe. What we believe is that God, in a sense, couldn't help himself. He created because that's what creators do. I mean, think about this. What do poets do? What do singers do? What do artists do? They create, they, they express themselves, they want to get it out because they couldn't hold it in if they tried. Right? God creates because it is in his nature to create. Let's move on because as we all know and as we are reminded every single day, something went horribly wrong. By Genesis chapter 3, things had fallen apart. What was intended to be perfect and lovely and and, and life-giving became imperfect. And and what happened was that sin entered the world. And for the second time in in one sermon, I'm going to remind you that I can't say everything that that, that probably should be said about this, but I can say this much. Sin entered the world and creation was spoiled because of human rebellion against the Creator. It didn't take long for the human beings in this story to want more than they had. To doubt the words that the Creator spoke to them. 
But to think that they could figure things out for themselves. They didn't need anyone's help. Uh, the first sin, you might be surprised to hear me say this, the first sin wasn't taking a, a bite of the apple. The first sin was hubris. Which is a wonderful old word for arrogance and conceit and pride and an inflated sense of our own importance. God created a world in which human beings had choices, what we like to call free will. And, and, and so they could choose to love or not. They could choose to follow the Creator or not. They were free to enjoy what they had been given, but they decided to reach for more, what they had been specifically warned not to reach for. Do you know something? I, I, I can't emphasize this strongly enough. I can't emphasize how strongly enough sin is, how serious it is. What a terrible force or power it is in our world today. Uh, Peter Kreeft, a, a Catholic theologian and philosopher he teaches at Boston College, says there are two major objections to Christianity. I mean, there are a bunch more, but there are two uh, of the most serious, and by comparison, the others don't even count. And one objection is that natural science seems to do a pretty good job of explaining everything uh, in the universe without need for a God. And two, the, the, the second objection is the problem of evil. If God is so good, why is his world so bad? Or, or these, this is how he puts it, if an all-good, all-wise, all-loving, all-just, all-powerful God is running the show, why does he seem to be doing such a miserable job of it? And, and the answer, according to believers down through the centuries, is that uh, we have only ourselves to blame. You can blame uh, uh, Satan, uh, the enemy who tests us and, and, and plays with our minds and, and pushes us to do what, you know, what we or, or probably would not do. But, but, but in the end, there is no one to blame but ourselves. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7, we read about Paul's own inner wrestling. And if, if you've never read these words before, if you've never heard them read, I urge you to go back and, and reread them. And then please don't stop there. Go on to chapter 8 for some resolution and good news. But in chapter 7, Paul wrestles with this terrible and insidious and awful thing called sin. The good we want to do, we can't do it. And the bad we want to avoid, we can't seem to do that either. We are caught in this desperate situation, a loop, and it only seems to get worse as we get older. And by the way, if you were hoping I would say something about how things smooth out with age, I'm going to disappoint you. you know, we wrestle with sin, I'm afraid, throughout our lives. Temptations do not go away. They change. They take on different forms. But they do not go away. And so we live, you and I, in this terrible human predicament, and it is called sin. John Calvin, a 16th century reformer uh, who lived most of his life in Geneva, John Calvin used to say that even our best efforts, I mean, even when other people are impressed by how good we are and, and how loving we are, even in those times, he said, our motives are twisted. We appear to be doing good, but even then we can't do it purely. And Calvin's followers decided to call that total depravity, capital T. We are a mess. Human beings are a mess. 
If you don't believe me, turn on the news. I, I, I find it difficult to do it these days. But I can't help myself. Like sin, I do it over and over again. The, the world is a frightening place. So out, I mean, it's so out of control. But I watch anyway as though I need more evidence <laughs> to, to convince me that things are not the way they are meant to be. And if you think I am exaggerating about how bad things got and how quickly they went from uh, bad to worse, uh, look at uh, Genesis chapter 4. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Oh my goodness! Cain, filled with jealousy and, and rage, lured his younger brother out into the field one day and clobbered him. I mean, how was it possible to go from a creation that was good and just and, and, and so full of hope to a creation where murder seems like the only possible solution to a sibling issue? Now, I, I, I can't end today without leaving you with some hope. Right, that would be irresponsible, and the truth is there is a great deal of hope in the Bible. Next week when we talk about Jesus, we will see God's rescue plan unfold. Right, and, and it will be on full display, but already in Genesis, before any human beings thought of a Messiah, God began to lay the foundation for a rescue. God began to make covenants with his people, and and God, this is the critical point, it was God who took the initiative over and over again to set things right. That is the story of the Old Testament. Here's what I want to say today more than, more than anything else. Because God is so in love with his creation, because God is so in love with you and, and me, because God takes such delight in our world in spite of everything, God is determined to set things right. I mean, that's what we believe. That's the summary of, of our faith. And, and, and without that hope, we have nothing. Without that hope, we live in darkness. What is wrong will be set right. And what is unjust will be made just. I mean, that's the reason I am able to get up in the morning. And face each new day in, in, in spite of the headlines I read. That's the faith I have embraced for myself and, and for my family. It's the faith I would have you embrace as well. So tell me this, and, and I won't ask for a show of hands or a response, and we won't pass the microphone around, but, but tell me this. What, what is your hope? Right? What, what, where are you placing your trust you know, what, what, what is the other alternative here? I would like to know. Uh, I can't wait until next week. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.